seat. If we have not met, my name is DJ Martin, one of the pastors here at PFC, and it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. We are continuing in our ongoing series called We Are. Look at your neighbor and say, We Are. We are. We've been talking about, for the last five, six weeks, we've been talking about who we are, just on the most basic level of who we are as a congregation. We spent a week looking at our purpose, uh, which is, oh, I'll come back to that. Uh, did anybody else see this this morning? This was this morning. Yeah, this was this morning. I, I left the house, and it was over my neighbor's house. I could only see the, the left side. And uh, I called my wife, and she went out and took pictures with the kids. And then I got to church, and it was, like, right over the church like that. Isn't that awesome? Let's just thank God. God, we thank you. We bless you. Yeah, yeah, thank you, God. We love you. You're so good. You're amazing. Also, uh, let's take a moment and pray for Ukraine and Poland. Um, we have uh, Samuel and Emily who attend here. They couldn't be here this morning. Samuel was born and raised in Poland, and his home church in Poland has been supporting Ukrainian refugees out of the conflict. And uh, several months ago, uh, this past spring, we uh, took a series of love offerings uh, for that, and people gave very, very generously uh, to, uh, to these churches in Poland that are going over and caring for Ukrainian refugees. So I, I just wanted to give a quick update because Samuel and Emily had approached me about prayer, that they, they're really requesting prayer. So this is just a quick update. Uh, let's pray for Samuel's dad, uh, Tomek, as he has been driving supplies to Ukraine multiple times a month since February. Tomek said they have been uh, taking about two trips a month for the past few months, but they are hoping to go more often again because people need uh, windows in their homes, so they want to install windows that have been blown out. When the cities were bombed, the explosions blew out all the windows of these buildings, and now winter is coming, and they're trying to go every week to deliver and install as many windows for people as they can. He said they have fewer people from the church in Poland willing to drive every week, so he asked us to pray for people willing to sacrifice their time and make their trip. So could we honor that prayer and together just pray that the Lord would raise up people and maybe he's burning in you uh, a desire to contribute or help in some way. Uh, Samuel and Emily aren't here today, but they continue uh, to need funds, and so we can continue to give towards that. Um, and so let's just pray for a moment for Tomek. Lord, we were just praying uh, about being a part of a, uh, a global church, and that includes the church in Poland and in Ukraine and all of the chaos that's been going on there for months and months and months. And there are people, and there are little children, and there are babies, and there are widows, and there are orphans who are suffering because of this conflict. And we know that your word says that pure and honest religion is caring for the widows and orphans. And so we just want to thank you for Tomek. We thank you for their church. Thank you for Samuel and Emily. Thank you for those who are going and serving. Thank you for those who are making this drive several times a month into dangerous areas and are going to serve. And they're seeking to put windows on homes that have been blown out. And so, Lord, we just pray that they would be able to accomplish that, that they would be able to represent you as your hands and feet. Lord, that through this witness, people would come to know you and love you and that they would have everything they need, God. And help us to remember to pray. Help us to be a people of prayer, praying for India, uh, praying for Haiti, praying for the Philippines, praying uh, for Ukraine, praying for Poland, praying for all the places that you stir in our hearts, God. Thank you that those, there are those who are praying for us in the same way. And so we just lift them up to you today, God. Thank you for Samuel and Emily. Thank you for bringing them to us and kind of plugging them in here at PFC. I'm so grateful for this young couple. Bless their marriage and uh, their family. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. We, we have been talking about our purpose, and this is our purpose, to know God and show God. Say this with me, to know God and show God. This is why we exist as a church, and then we spent the last four weeks talking about our mission statement, and our mission is this, PFC, of people following Christ up, in, and out. Let's read this together. Uh, people following Christ up, in, and out, and we work through that paradigm backwards, so Dave started us out uh, with a week on out, and then I did in, and then Brandon last uh, week, and Shannon uh, led us through a series of reflections and testimonies and teaching on uh, being a people following Christ up. All right, today we're going to be talking about our vision, 
And uh, this week did not go at all as I anticipated uh, or expected. So when I came into the church on Monday morning and uh, spent some time on Monday afternoon trying to collect my thoughts uh, for this morning's teaching, this went in a whole different direction than I anticipated, but it was a super fun week. Like, I just had so much fun with the Lord, so much fun with the Holy Spirit, kind of following his movement, following his, uh, his word, and ending up in a place that I just did not anticipate. So are you ready to go on an adventure with me this morning? Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you to work hard, okay? This is not a cookies on the bottom shelf type of uh, teaching. I'm going to ask you to think, and I'm going to ask you to think well, and I'm going to ask you to be stressed a little bit. Is that okay? Can we do that? All right. So here is our vision at PFC. Now, our purpose never changes. That, that is uh, an eternal purpose, that we exist to know God and we exist to show God. And you can say that in different ways, but that is why we exist. Our mission, I don't think it really changes all that much from year to year, from generation to generation. I think our mission as a people at, at PFC, going back 200 years, <laughs> has been to be a people following Christ up in and out. What does change from time to time is our vision. And think about your own life. Even in your own life, your vision will change uh, from time to time. For instance, I could tell you what uh, I think the vision is for my life right now, where I'm headed, where God is taking me, and what I would articulate and describe is very different than the vision I would have articulated 15 years ago. Um, and I hope it's different than the vision I'll articulate 15 years from now, because I'm still growing, I'm still maturing, I'm still being shaped by God. And so this is how I, having pastored here at PFC for the past five years and, and uh, being called into the, the position of uh, leadership and vision, vision here at PFC, this is how I would articulate where I believe it is that together as we listen and pray, where we think God is taking us. And this is, this is our vision, that we would develop as followers of Jesus, equipped to live out the way of Jesus within our cultural context. Let me say it again. Our, our vision here is to develop. Notice the language there is a little bit awkward. It's not that me or the other pastors or the elders would develop you. No, it's that we, together, you and I, in relationship with one another and in relationship with Jesus, would develop together as followers of Jesus, equipped to live out the way of Jesus within our cultural context. I don't know if you have realized this, but the world is changing. If you're 40 years old, if you've lived 40 years, the, the world has changed in your 40 years. If you expand that a little bit longer, Sociologists say that, that culture is changing at a rate never before seen in history. The gap between grandparents and grandchildren is greater today, culturally, than at any other point in recorded uh, Western history. Things are moving and developing so quickly. So what do we do? What do we do? Does God change? No, he never changes. So as we follow Jesus, we are being equipped by Jesus to live out the way of Jesus within our cultural context. All right, that was the vision statement going into this week, and it's still the vision statement uh, in this week. So that's not what changed for me. What changed for me is how I want to talk about this. And hopefully you'll have fun with me this morning when we talk about it. I'm going to lay out a roadmap because I think sometimes this is what my mind looks like. And uh, to me, that makes sense. To you, you're probably like, Where, what is he talking about? Where is he going? So these, uh, these are the things I want to talk about this morning. Uh, first of all, something's wrong in the church. Something is very wrong in the church. And you don't have to be an ecclesiastical church leader. You don't have to be a pastor or a priest or a set-apart leader to know that things aren't well. The church is not healthy. Um, and I'm not just talking about PFC, although this has implications for us here at PFC. Capital C Church, like in our cultural moment, in America, it's not well. It's not healthy. Uh, so I want to talk about that for just a moment. Number two... Um, I want to talk about the second, or depending on how you count it, the third commandment uh, out of the Ten Commandments. Believe it or not, there's debates uh, between biblical scholars about how to count the commandments. Thirdly, and that's where we'll spend the majority of our time, is talking about the second or third commandment. Thirdly, I want to talk about the church being in bed with Rome, and the church is still in bed with Rome today. 
And fourth, we'll do a quick survey of name-bearing in the Bible, uh, alluding to the second commandment. And then fifth, we'll touch back on PSC's vision. Sound good? All right, that's the roadmap for where we're headed. So you know we've got a destination in mind when we end up on this trail over here that's like, what in the world is he talking about? All right, something is wrong with the church. This, uh, we just started a brand new Sunday school class in the library. We had over 30 people packed in there. We had to move the, the tables because we didn't have enough room and just packed like sardines in this room over there this morning. And we're going through a book called Unshockable Love. And he says this, the author and pastor John Burke says this at the beginning of the book. If you ask people on the street for one word to describe Christians today, what would they say? So if we would walk out on High Street in Pottstown and just grab the first stranger and say, describe Christians in one word. I've asked this question, he says, while speaking to Christians and church leaders all over North America, Europe, Scandinavia. Uh, Europe and Scandinavia are apparently different places now. Uh, and Australia. And I find it very troubling that we all know the answers. Here are the answers. Judgmental, narrow-minded, arrogant, hypocritical, bigoted. These seem to be the most commonly agreed upon one-word answers. How tragic. How tragic that this is the way that the world, this is the way that those outside of the church view those inside of the church. It used to be that if you were a Christian, you had the moral high ground in culture. Now it's the exact opposite. If you're a Christian, you're viewed as having the lesser moral high ground. In a post-truth, post-Christian, post-modern world, these are the ways that we are described. Judgmental, narrow-minded, arrogant, hypocritical bigoted. And for any of us who have had any length of experience in the church, we've come in contact with this. We've felt this. Perhaps we ourselves have been a source of this for someone else. Someone else has been the source of this for us. We all have wounding from, just like every person has daddy wounds and mommy wounds, every person in the church has leadership wounds and, and hurt from pastors and, and leaders. And we are part of that. <laughs> and something's wrong, because it's not supposed to be this way. Amen? This is not supposed to be the way that it is. These are the Ten Commandments as traditionally counted uh, in bite-sized nuggets. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Um, Many biblical scholars think that these first two commandments are one. They're actually one commandment. So how, how a lot of Hebrew scholars would count it is this, that you may have no other gods before me, make no idols. And so that's one commandment. And then the second would be, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And I actually like that interpretation because what those, seem, those statements seem to be doing is they're making a heading for the rest of the commandments. So Moses goes up on to Mount Sinai, God calls him up, and he says these statements, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any images, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and that's like the header over the whole thing, and then underneath fall all the other commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. What I want to look at is what's on this list, the third commandment, or the second commandment, depending on how you're counting it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Who here memorized this commandment with the word take there, as, as it's put in the ESV? So raise your hand if you've got it memorized with the word take there. So you shall not take the name. Other, other translations, older translations may say, um, you shall not um, uh, speak the name of the Lord, or misuse is another translation that's used, uh, misuse. This is the Hebrew word nasa. Everybody say nasa. N-A-S-A, nasa. You shall not nasa the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who nasas his name in vain. 
when, when we were taught, I think many of us as kids in the broadly speaking evangelical church, when we were taught this commandment, tell, let me know if this was how you were taught it. Essentially, what we were taught is when you're walking through your kitchen and you catch your pinky toe on the corner of the table, thou shalt not say Jesus Christ. Is that how, how this commandment was, was taught to you, essentially? Or, um, or when the Phillies crash and burn, thou shalt not say, <laughs> thou shalt not say, oh my God. Or, or when something really good happens, thou shalt not say, oh my God, did you hear about this? Oh my goodness, did you watch that movie? It was amazing. NASA um, in that sense, we're taught that it's about how we speak. This Hebrew word um, does not mean a speech act. It never means a speech act. It's used dozens and dozens of times in the Hebrew scriptures, and it never has to do with what is said. It always has to do with a physical lifting up. So reorient your minds and think less about speaking the name of God, and more about the idea of lifting up the name of God, or my favorite way to think of this, to bear, to bear the name of God. You shall not bear, you shall not carry, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who lifts up and bears his name in vain. This totally changes the meaning, or opens it up in this marvelous, amazing way. The Lord Yahweh has taken his set-apart, chosen people from the family of Abraham, and rescued them from slavery, and he's led them into the wilderness, into Mount Sinai, and just a few verses before this, he says in chapter 19 of Exodus, you are my special possession, you are a nation of high priests. You are a nation of priests. You are a people who are meant to be priests to the other nations. When Israel marched into Canaan, they carried with them banners. And on these banners were written the name or the names of God. And so the people of Israel marching into Canaan are, what are they doing? They're bearing the name of God. How do the nations know who Yahweh is? By how who lives? Who teaches them? The people of Israel. You shall not bear my name in vain. When you go into the, the nations and the nations look at you, they're going to have their idea of who I am based on how you live. How do people describe Christians today? Judgmental, arrogant, bigoted, hypocritical. The name of the Lord being born in vain. God says to his people, I am Yahweh, I am, I am the self-existent one, and I have stamped my name upon you. So as you go, you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. This is a picture of the high priest's breastplate. Um, this is described a few chapters later in Exodus, and uh, the high priest Aaron would have worn this, and then his son, and then his son, and his son, on down through the generations. And the high priest wore these uh, elaborate robes and the breastplate. And you'll see on the breastplate are 12 stones. And anybody know what was written on the 12 stones on the, on the breastplate? The 12 tribes. Very good. Each stone had a tribe of Israel stamped upon it, written upon it. And this is what God says. So Aaron shall what? Nasa, he shall bear. This has nothing to do with speaking. Aaron is the high priest bearing the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim. 
and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall nasa bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So Aaron has the same role in microcosm that the people of Israel have. Do you say macrocosm? Is that a word? In macrocosm. So Aaron is a type, he's a picture of what's happening between the people of Israel and God. He's nasaing, he's bearing the names of the people of, of Israel to God so that God will remember them, so that God will favor them, so God that w- will forgive them and care for them. In the same way, God has put his name on every Israelite's heart so that they would bear the testimony of who God is to the nations. Thou shalt not bear the name of the Lord in vain. I just want to give credit where credit's due. I was uh, first alerted to this conversation through the work of Dr. Carmen Imes, uh, who has a PhD in biblical studies and Hebrew scriptures from Wheaton. And uh, I've listened to this podcast like four times now where she talks about this. She specializes, her entire dissertation was on this word NASA, uh, like a 200-page dissertation on this one word and how it affects our understanding of who God is and what he's doing. I want to give uh, an example in church history about Nasaing gone wrong, about name-bearing gone wrong. So Church Imperial, and this is where my week got really weird because I came in on Monday with an idea of where I thought I was heading in the teaching, and then I kept feeling an urge. I can only describe it as an urge. I kept feeling a strong urge on Monday afternoon to read church history from the third century. Anybody else have that urge? Uh, on Monday afternoon, <laughs> Daniel, a little bit. I, I just felt this burning desire to read third century church history. So I spent all afternoon uh, in, in the study there in the office reading about uh, the Constantinian area of the church. So um, Constantine was uh, a general who Rome was in civil war at the beginning of the third century. Up until then, the church had been underground, had been persecuted, had been in the margins, had been slaves and poor and women and Jews. All of these despised people were who was making up the church. And and so the the church's first 300 years of history um, was just this quiet, secret movement. Everything changes, everything changes in the third century. Up until then, the church has no power whatsoever. Uh, The church had just gone through the worst decade of persecution in its history, worse than the persecution of Nero, the Diocletian, if you've heard of that, the Diocletian persecution of the first 10 years of the third century Hundreds and hundreds of Christians across the Roman world were executed for their faith. This all leads up to this moment. Rome is in civil war. There's four people who are in power of of four different regions of Rome. And a man named Constantine had power in Spain, France, and uh, England, uh, Great Britain. And he desired to take over the whole uh, empire. His name was Constantine. And so he was biding his time, he was building up an army, and in 312, he marched on the city of Rome and faced a far superior army under General Maximus. And I think that's how you say his name, but he approached the Tiber River outside of Rome, and he had a vision. Anybody know about this vision? Yeah, uh, those from Coventry Christian School know about this. Uh, This is called the Cairo. It's two letters from the Greek alphabet combined. The X is the chi, uh, makes the ch sound in Greek, and the P is actually, makes the R sound. And so you put these two together, and it's the Cairo. Maybe you've seen this symbol before. Constantine, according to legend, either has a dream or a vision. There's conflicting reports. He looks up into the heavens. And he sees this sign, and a voice from heaven says, in this sign, you will have victory. And so Constantine, a pagan priest who does not believe in the living God, has this encounter. He takes this symbol, which are the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, the chi, the rho, 
And so it's a Christian symbol. And he takes it and he paints it on the shields of every soldier in Rome. And they go and they have victory over a far superior army. Constantine then opens up the halls of power in Rome to Christians. He ends the persecution, the Diocletian persecution. He opens up halls of power to Christians for the first time. For the first time in its 300-year history, Christianity has access to wealth, has access to status, has access to power, and we're still dealing with the ramifications of that today. We are still dealing with the Constantinian-era church today. Constantine probably never really knew Jesus. Um, he continued to offer pagan sacrifices throughout his life. He continued to lead the priests of Rome in worship of the pagan gods. He continued to have as his highest deity the sun god. And it was only on his deathbed, moments before his death, that he consented to baptism. So what happens to the church? 300 years, the church has been persecuted, pushed to the side, has been a movement of the poor and the oppressed and the outcast, been in the margins of society with no access to power, no access to prestige. What happens to the church when suddenly she has access to the throne room of Caesar? Things get really, really messy. This is my favorite uh, church historian, Justo Gonzalez. He has a series of books surveying church history. And he says this, the question of the nature and sincerity of Constantine's conversion must be discussed. But what is of paramount importance for the story of Christianity is not so much how sincere Constantine was or how he understood the Christian faith as the impact of his conversion and the rule both during his lifetime and thereafter. The impact was such that it has been suggested that throughout most of its history, the church has lived in the Constantinian era, and that even now, in the 21st century, we're going through crises connected with the end of that long era. When my little girl, Gracie, was about three years old, we were living in Drexel Hill, and we lived in a parsonage, and outside the parsonage was this giant pine tree, and one day, a big old branch dropped. And if you've ever seen one of those big old branches drop, they're filled with sap. And my daughter, with her beautiful long hair, she, all our kids were bald when they were born, so she finally had, finally had hair, and it was so cute and so beautiful, she ran through the branches of this uh, fallen pine, a big pine branch, and her hair was filled to the roots with pine sap. It was just filled with pine sap. And we, we didn't want to cut off her hair. It had finally grown, and she was so cute. And so, I don't know how long it was, but I sat out on the front porch and I emptied bottles of hand sanitizer into her hair as she cried and just slowly, 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 painstakingly worked the sap out of her hair. That's what happened when the church got in bed with Rome. It's like running through this massive sap-laden tree that's sticking to us, and no matter how much we comb and cleanse and pull out, we can't get away from it because we're still obsessed with power. We're still obsessed with cultural relevance. We're still obsessed with being right above culture. We're still obsessed with ruling. We're still obsessed with all of these things that were not the case before the church got in bed with Rome. We're still dealing with this. So if you've ever been in a situation where a church leader loved to rule it over you with power and authority, you're experiencing the church in bed with Rome. Not that there wasn't hypocrisy before that, but man, did it infiltrate the church in a way that we're still dealing with today in the 21st century. He goes on to say there's no doubt that the conversion of Constantine had enormous consequences for Christianity which was forced to face new questions. What would happen when those who called themselves servants of a carpenter, whose great heroes were fisher folk, slaves and criminals condemned to death by the state, suddenly saw themselves surrounded by imperial pomp and power? Would they remain firm in their faith, or would it be that those who had stood firm before tortures and before beasts would give way to the temptations of an easy life of social prestige? As for the laity, the average person, who's just trying to follow Jesus in the mess of life, there's no doubt that the experience of the conversion became less dramatic or fateful than it had been in earlier times. There was less to pay for. 
There's ample evidence of increasing syncretism. Syncretism is when you worship Jesus, but you also worship idols and superstition. Archaeologists have found proof of this in tombs from this era, from various areas of the empire where people were buried with a combination of Christian and pagan symbols and religious artifacts. When people became ill, they often had recourse to ancient magical practice, much to the chagrin of many a Christian preacher. Listen to this line. How tragic is this? Gladiatorial combats where Christians once died for their faith persisted and some Christians now attended. Until Constantine's time, Christian worship had been relatively simple. It was Christians gathering in private homes. And then they began to gather in cemeteries, like the catacombs. But after Constantine's conversion, Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. Incense, which was used as a sign of respect for emperor, the god emperor that was worshipped by the people of Rome. Incense began being used as a sign of respect uh, in Christian churches, officiating ministers who until then had worn everyday clothes, began dressing more luxurious garments, and were soon called priests in imitation of their pagan counterparts. Eventually, the congregation came to have less active role in worship. That's why church is so often in our society a Coldplay concert and a TED Talk. People just want to come and consume. We were not made to do that. We were made to participate. We were made to confess, we were made to pray, we were made to hurt together, to cry together, to serve together. Andy Crouch says this in Culture Making, the gospel constantly challenges every human culture with the possibility that we live within misplaced horizons. Maybe what we want, maybe what we have visions of, you know, being powerful, being successful, being popular, being wealthy, Maybe we're living with misplaced horizons. This is true for the area of Christendom, talking about Constantinian era. The centuries when Constantinople or Rome imposed belief on vast parts of Europe or Asia, as Christianized as these cultures were, they could no more fully comprehend the gospel than a pagan culture could hearing it for the first time. Right in the midst of Christendom were firmly entrenched cultural practices. Consider the Crusades or the relentless persecution of the Jews that took place throughout all of this era. You shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Constantine has a literal vision of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He paints it on the shields of his soldiers and they march victoriously into Rome bearing the name of Jesus. And we are dealing with the consequences of that choice for the church to agree to it even to today. You shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. Yahweh has put his name upon you, so live the way of Yahweh. What happens when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai? What does he find the people doing? Worshiping what? A golden calf on their marriage night. They get in bed. The adultery bed. It's, it's, it's their wedding night, and they commit adultery. For the church, it wasn't necessarily the wedding night, but man, in the scope of church history, maybe it was coming off their honeymoon, coming off our honeymoon. We get in bed with the idols of this world and think that we can play power games and think that this is the way we rule. The disciples are confused about this right before Jesus ascends into heaven, after he's died, after he's been crucified, after he's uh, resurrected and appeared to them, they say, okay, is now the time that you'll restore power to the kingdom of Israel? Is now the time? And he says to them, no, no, that is not what this is about. You will receive power not to conquer nations. You will receive power to what? Bear the name, to witness to witness to Jesus Christ. How do you bear the name of Jesus appropriately? If you bear his name, then you must live his way. This is how we bear the name of God, by living the way of God. The once persecuted church began to persecute pagans. Oh, the most, I've said this so many times, the most quoted verse of the first 300 years before this of church history is love your enemy. No longer is that the most quoted verse as the church gets in bed with Rome. 
Christians begin to attend gladiatorial events where their forebears were murdered and killed. They now go to enjoy the death of others. The once poor and powerless begin to enjoy and even seek power. The simple church becomes elaborate and messy. Pastors wearing plain clothes become priests wearing ornate robes, marrying their pagan counterparts. And most of the church begins to follow Arianism, one of the worst heresies in all of church history. Arianism teaches this, that Christ, when he was born, he was also created. And so, in other words, Jesus did not eternally exist. And Arianism became what almost all of Christianity believed in the third century. Just a few monks in Egypt kept the fire burning bright that no, Jesus is the eternal son of God. All of this is because of bearing the name of God, of Jesus, falsely. This theme shows up all over scripture, even in the most famous recognizable places, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in a path of righteousness. Why? Because I bear his name. He leads me to live a right life because I bear his name. When other people encounter me, I am how they find out about who God is. And if I live a way that's contrary to who God is, then guess what people will think about God? If you bear his name, live his way, you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, a region filled with idols, to the mount of a cave filled with idols, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When I look at you, I see Yahweh's name imprinted upon you. You don't just bear his name, you live his way. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does the Catholic Church teach about this verse? It, it, it teaches that Peter's the first pope because of, uh, because of this meaning. That's not what this means. This is not a, a statement of ecclesiastical succession. That has nothing to do with what this is about. And until the time of Constantine, nobody thought that. Because there were no ecclesiastical heads to follow like the pope. It's only after the era of Constantine, when the church starts playing power games with Rome, that then the church looks back in this verse and says, oh, this is about power. This is about God handing down power through men. And so Peter's successor then becomes the pope, and then the one after that, and so on and so forth, until we arrive at today. That is not what this is saying. He's not even talking about Peter. He's talking about what Peter said. Look at what Peter said. You are the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the rock upon which God builds his church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That confession, and anyone who bears the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive power from on high to bear my name through my spirit to all the nations of the earth. Whenever you bear the name of Jesus, what you're doing is you're saying this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And upon that confession, God is building his church, and even the power games of Rome shall not overcome it. There's something more beautiful that he's doing. Now watch this. Peter gets pumped up, and he's like, okay. From that time, Jesus began to explain that I don't play power games according to the earth. I must go and die. <laughs> I've got to go and die. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to the rock and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. You're bearing the name of God in vain. If you have my name, live my way. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, 
what is a disciple? What are we called? What are we called? Say it. What are we? We're followers of Christ. We're Christian. That's our name. We're Christian. We're little Christs. He stamped his name upon us. If you would be a little Christ, if you would bear the name of Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Do not play those games. Take up your cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? There were some priests in the time of Constantine that gained the whole world. What good is it for you to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? How often has the church gained the world and forfeited its soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. This isn't a work salvation statement. It's a, you bear my name, so live my way. How do we bear the name of Jesus? This theme just keeps going. It shows up in the book of Revelation. Yeah, the Mark of the Beast, ever heard of that? Maybe the mis most misinterpreted scripture in American church over the last 100 years. 666 is put on the heads of every person who lives according to the, to the world's standards. So just a little biblical fun nugget. 666 is the numerical value of Nero's name in Greek. So every Greek letter had a numerical value, and you add up Nero's name, and, it, and Nero was the emperor at the time of John's writing that was persecuting the church. Nero's name is 666. He's talking about Nero, a guy who lived a long time ago. <laughs> um, everybody's stamped with this name, the name of the world. Or in the next chapter, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. We all bear a name. Whose name are we bearing? And how are we bearing it? So this is our vision. PFC's vision is to develop as followers of Jesus, equipped to live out the way of Jesus within our cultural context. And if I would say it in a pithy way, I would say it like this. We live with Jesus so we can live like Jesus. Can you say that with me? Live with Jesus so we can live like Jesus. We live with Jesus so that we can live like Jesus. Part of me wishes I could stand up here today and say, we're going to plant X amount of churches, and we're going to have X amount of people in this building, and we're going to have book deals and sermon deals and podcasts and all of these things that will come out of here, and we're going to change culture, and we're going to win Pottstown, and we're going to be amazing, and everyone's going to know about PFC. Let's get out of bed with Rome. Let's get out of bed with Rome. It's not a vision. Maybe God speaks to some people in that way, and I don't mean to denigrate that. But I believe with all my heart what he's saying to us. So let me worry about that. Live with me so you can live like me. If you would have told me that our church, three churches would merge even a year and a half ago, I'd have been like, what? Who knows what God's going to do in the next year and a half? We live with Jesus so we can live like Jesus so that he can do whatever he wants to do. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his church. This is our vision. I'm sorry. I wish it could be a lot more exciting. <laughs> this is, I think, the most exciting vision that there can be, though, that we would follow the pillar of fire at night and we would follow the cloud of smoke in the day. And as he leads us through the wilderness, sometimes he's zigging when we think he should be zagging. And sometimes he's zagging when we think he should be zigging. And sometimes he's going backwards when we're ready to charge forward. And sometimes he tells us to go into the land and we're like, no, there's giants in there. What we do is we follow him today. We follow him right now, in this moment. And that's enough. Your word is a lamp to my feet. How far does a lamp show down the path? Very, not very far. Your word is a spot beam 
that they are, what are they called? Those huge spotlights. There it is. Too many words this morning. Your word is a spotlight that shows 3,000 feet. No, your word is a lamp, which means I can see that one root in front of me. And I'm still going to probably trip over it. Where is a lamp? We keep wanting some magic pill. We keep going back to Rome over and over again, going back to Babylon over and over again, thinking that, okay, if we just get enough power, if we just get enough cultural relevance, if we just get smart enough, we're going to figure this out and we're going to take back the world for Jesus. Follow the pillar today. Follow the flame today. It's in the broken. It's in the quiet places. It's in neighbors serving one another without ever getting recognition for it. It's in caring for the homeless and adopting children. It's in praying for those who are persecuted even when we can't do anything else and giving sacrificially. This is how the kingdom is built as Jesus is witnessed to over and over again. And upon this rock, he is building his church and we have nothing to fear because guess what? No matter what happens on Tuesday, God's good. No matter what happens on Tuesday, ain't nobody taking him off that throne. Nobody can take him off his throne. He's like, you ever play King of the Hill when you were a kid? Ain't nobody. He's not moving. Here's some of the ways, real quickly, we sense the Lord inviting us to live with Jesus so that we can live like Jesus. Some of the ways we sense the Lord asking us to bear his name into the world. We want to be a presence-based leadership model. When we have elder meetings, we put a chair in the middle of it and say, we know, Jesus, that you are here. And even though we can't see you with our eyes, you are the only one who can lead us. And we orient ourselves around the presence of Jesus. We want to be a people of the word of God. Because God is speaking, and he's speaking through his word. And he's speaking through Jesus, who is the word of God. We want to be a people devoted to prayer, not just as prayer as a spiritual discipline. We want prayer to be a spiritual discipline in your life, but if it's just a discipline, you're missing the whole point. It is the way. How do you follow the pillar? How do you follow the cloud? By praying, by listening. We want to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of an anxious world. Who has an anxious neighbor who lives next to him? Who has an anxious member in their family? One of the great gifts we get to offer the world is to be non-anxious because Jesus has got it. We want to be a simple church, not about the show, simple. Our vision is to be equipped as followers of Jesus. Our primary vision is not measurable, human benchmarks of success. Success here at PFC is defined by faithfulness to Christ, not by metrics. Faithfulness to Christ, without what? It's impossible to please God without faith. And what is more successful than being pleasing to God? Faithfulness is how we please our Lord. Success is defined by faithfulness to Christ. A safe, we want this to be a safe place to wrestle and ask hard questions in the context of a loving, committed spiritual community. So maybe you're wrestling with a season of doubt or deconstruction or difficult things. Like, that's okay. Everybody goes through the valley of the shadow. Everybody goes through dark nights of the soul. Let's do it together. Let's go back to the word of God together. Let's wrestle with the hard questions. Why does it seem like the Old Testament condones genocide? Why does it seem like the scriptures condone mistreatment of women? God can handle these questions. He's not scared of them. He can handle it. He's good. Ain't nobody pushing him off that rock. We can talk about it. We want to be an Antioch church. We receive and we send and we pray, and that's our secret sauce. A people following Christ in three dimensions, up in and out. A people who wrestle with hard questions. A people who confess our brokenness and need for ongoing reformation. A people who love Jesus because he first loved us. A Hesed Agape-shaped people. A people who bear the name of God and bear the fruit of the Spirit. If you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you'll what? Bear much fruit thou shalt not, what? Bear the name of the Lord in vain. That's why we're going into a whole series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit. For, for the next number of weeks in Advent, not starting next week, but in a few weeks, for all of Advent, uh, Christmas season, we're going to be talking about how does Jesus embody love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because we want to be a people who bear the name of Jesus, and that's how you bear it, through those fruits. 
Andy Crouch again, the gospel constantly challenged every human culture with the possibility that we live with misplaced horizons. Could you let that challenge you today? Maybe what we want for a vision is misplaced, and maybe Jesus is just saying, I'm enough for today. So feast on me and follow me today. These are our statements. I want to invite you to stand. We've been going through all of these we are statements. Would you stand with me? Worship team, you can come up. We've been saying them together, and I purposely waited to the end today so that together as a confessional community, confessing Christ, we can say these statements. If you're visiting with us today, you're welcome to say these. Um, Maybe you're like, what in the world? Uh, These are just statements we believe are, are, are ways that God is naming us as a church. So if you're visiting, you're welcome to say them or you're welcome to just listen, but let's read them one at a time together. All right, let's read them. We are created to know God and show God. We are a people following Christ up, in, and out. We are disciple makers. We are created by love for love. We are a people who tend to the presence of God. We live with Jesus to live like Jesus. Jesus, we pray that the vision here at PFC would be your vision and your vision alone. Only you are allowed to lead your people. We're under shepherds. Those of us who have a role in the church, my only job is to listen. Our only jobs as elders, as pastors, as leaders, the congregation, the priesthood of believers, our job is to listen to you and to follow you and to bear your name, not in vain, but in such a way that the people of East Coventry, the people of Pottstown, the people of South East Pennsylvania would no longer look at us and say, oh, they're judgmental, they're bigoted. But when they interact with us, they say, oh, wow, God is loving. He's kind. He calls people. He serves people. He loves people. He washes people clean, washes their feet. You've done this for us first so we can do it for the world. We love because you first loved us. God, help us to be a people who bear your name and not play the power games of this world and not seek the things of this world but seek the ways of Jesus. What does it profit a congregation to gain the world but forfeit their soul? Lord, we so desperately want our soul to be held in you that collectively you would cleanse us once again that we would follow you faithfully today and bless your holy name. We worship you. And so we're going to sing with joy together. Let's sing together.